0: Hey everyone, this is Tom Singer. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to inform you about a special offer that I have to join a brand new group called My Sales Call. If you work for a small business or if you're a solopreneur, having some people to talk about ideas and best practices and to have a focus and accountability around sales is so important. It's so easy to get caught up in the busy work that we don't do what we need to do to drive the sales in our business. So I have started a weekly call where people can get together and share ideas around sales and then make a commitment to the group of what they're gonna accomplish for the next week. It's just like if you work for a big company, your sales manager would have a weekly sales call. This is your sales call. Go to mysalescall.com to find out more and sign up today. You know, I started this show about five and a half years ago because I wanted access to really smart people who were doing really cool things in business. Because I know that one thing is always true. That is success leaves clues. When you get the chance to talk to someone who's interesting, who's been successful, who's, you know, creating things, they can't help it. They have to leave behind an idea. Uh, a theory, a concept, just a nugget that maybe you can take and run with you. And we've now done over 530 shows, and that's what this is all about. And today, I am really excited because I have with us Scott Shea. Now, Scott is the co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank of New York, and we're going to talk a little bit about that and how he started it. He is also the author of a brand new book, which I can't wait to hear more about, called In Good Faith. So, Scott, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Tom,
1: it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, Scott, I don't read the bios that your fancy PR people from New York send to me. Uh, I actually prefer to let my guests tell everybody about themselves. So could you please let the audience know, who is Scott Shea, what's your background, and what do you do today?
1: So I grew up in Chicago on the other side of the tracks in East Rogers Park, for anybody who knows that area. Um, I am the first person on either side of my family to go to college. I grew up actually in a one bedroom apartment. My parents had the bedroom. I lived in the dining room. And for a number of years, my uncle uh, had the living room. So didn't ever think I'd be starting a bank or doing anything like that. But I got into college, went to Northwestern, got a business degree, thought, boy, if I could get to Wall Street, that would be great. So I worked my rear end off. And I was able to get a job at Solomon Brothers, which in its day was a pretty large, well-known investment bank. Then I went into private equity. And then during the 90s, I had this weird idea that people thought it was crazy to, to think of, which is starting a new bank in New York, focused on the middle market. So I thought that, you know, Years ago, there used to be J.P. Morgan. There used to be Chase. There used to be Manufacturers Hanover. There used to be Chemical Bank. There used to be Trust Company of Westchester, Long Island Trust, Greater New York Savings Bank. I could go on and on. Today, those are all just one bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. And I thought, you know, those big banks, they're good at mass market retail. And they're good at taking care of the PepsiCo's and the Verizons and the AT&T's of the world. But I thought, you know, we could start a new bank so i sort of had this crazy idea i found two other people who had skills i didn't have to co-found the bank with me they initially thought it was crazy too and but i convinced them at some point um i'm persistent i don't know whether i'm more persistent or persuasive but whatever some combination and so we started a bank with forty-two and a half million dollars in capital that we raised from bank appalling <laughs> and we broke even in 21 months. Hmm. We went public in 34 months. And today, 18 and a half years later, having never made an acquisition, every client who comes to Signature Bank walked in the door. We're an over $50 billion bank.
0: Wow. That is, I mean, that is like a true American success story, especially the part that you know you were sleeping in the dining room. Uh, to the fact that you've helped found this 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 giant bank that, that goes on today. How were you able to really grow without doing acquisitions? I thought banks, I thought that was the only way a bank could grow from the 90s forward.
1: That is what I saw, is that, you know, people were clients of banks, customers of banks, because they were acquired. So you were, you know, first national bank of wherever, and then, First National Bank of the larger town next door bought you, bought your bank, so you were their client or customer. Then bank one came in from Detroit or someplace or Wells Fargo or Norwest or some bank, and then you were part of them. And they thought they owned you. And I thought that's a really loony idea. People should want to bank where they bank. And if you just offer really, really good service, I mean exceptional service to a highly targeted segmented market. In other words, we're not focused at all on the retail market. Nobody's heard of us. Most people in New York haven't heard of us because we have no retail presence. We're barely on the street. We the big companies, the big, you know, Verizon probably has never heard of us. But if you ask companies with between 25 and 500 employees in New York they've heard of us and we have a reasonable market share there. So it's a matter of being super duper focused, which is what I try to do in my entire life. And, 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 and then people want to come, we hire the best people. And here's the other secret sauce is I have what I call the golden rule of banking is don't think you're a genius. If you're a banker, just avoid the stupid stuff. So when, <laughs> 2008 came in 2009. we had never we had done any of subprime lending, any CDOs, any CDO squares, any um, special purpose funding vehicles. so we were the only bank in the United States of America above four billion. There's one other bank that, that below four billion but the only bank above four billion.
0: So I love, did not have a down year. I love the you comment. I love the comment. And I think it's true for everybody, whether you're a banker or not. You know, don't think you're a genius. Just avoid the stupid stuff. I mean, that should be that should be a
1: T-shirt. Right. <laughs> well, if you ask people around here, they will know it's one of my slogans. We may get to a few more. So what do you think
0: led you to be an entrepreneur? I mean, did you have that? Were you the kid who was uh, selling lemonade at the corner? Were you always entrepreneurial or was this something that, that came along later in life?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I was always entrepreneurial, Um you know, this may sound like a a strange segue, but I was, my father was a Holocaust survivor and um, most of my family was wiped out in Sveksna, Lithuania before they left. And I always had this like deep part of me inside that said, you always have to make sure to fend for yourself. Don't, you know, don't, you know, you, you couldn't trust in Lithuania. Um, You had to make sure that you took care of yourself and, and entrepreneurs have that deep need to succeed on their own and not to depend on others. Um, and so I think there's something there. Um, but this isn't a psychology uh, <laughs> psychology.
0: Well, I've talked, about, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and there's there's a, a class of people who think that to be a great entrepreneur, you had to have come from some sort of adversity. It's the old saying they said, like, back in the 20s, that if you looked at Major League Baseball, Richmond's kids didn't make it to the major leagues, and uh, I've interviewed a lot of people who think that, you know, either growing up poor or, you know, having a parent die or some sort of adversity, you know, along the way teaches you that self-reliance. Do you think that there's a piece of that?
1: Oh, no question about it. Um no question about it, because you you have this feeling that you have to be all in. You know, you have to want it more than the next person um, to be successful. I mean, when we started Signature Bank, one person called it a continuing emergency. <laughs> because when you start a new bank, there are so many things that can happen. I mean from operational to, to you know making credit judgments to otherwise, so it was a continuing emergency. We were always busy, and we were always doing things that were urgent and pressing, and we couldn't stop. And you know what? We weren't ever going to stop. So my two co-founders, um, one Joe DePaolo, he grew up in the Bronx, you know, also a modest means, you know, won a won a scholarship to go to college by playing basketball, and. My other co founder, John Tamberlane, literally started as a teller. Hmm. Gotcha. So we all, you know, we were in and all in.
0: <laughs> so you've done this for a long time now. What do you like about the fact that you carved your own way? What do you like about entrepreneurship?
1: I like the intellectual challenge of entrepreneurship because you've got to always be looking around the corners. Hmm. Um, the whole way that entrepreneurs look, Is to see things differently, to recognize the threats and to know, you know, what doesn't kill you today comes back tomorrow to try again. (laughs) And so you're always on your guard and you're always looking out for, you know, it's, you know, what your, your, your SWAT is.
0: So I often ask people who talk about early in their career, they work for some big company and we get to this point of the interview. And I often say, like for you, I'd say, do you ever wish you'd just stayed with Solomon brothers? But I guess we know the answer to that, the way that all played out. Apparently you made the right choice.
1: Yes. I, I, you know, I, just after I left, I probably thought about it for about 12 seconds, but I would not say longer than that. And, you know, look, you have to, you have to go through life and say, Everything that you've had got you to where you are right now. And if you look back with regrets, boy, you're never going to get anywhere.
0: God, I love that philosophy. And and I've kind of gone through that in some of my own life rather than dwelling on the bumps in the road in my own you know, business and things like that. I've just said I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it had all been, been smooth sailing. So I totally relate with, with what you're saying. Hey, what advice do you have for someone who's listening to the show who wants to Move their ladder. They feel like their ladders against the wrong wall. They want to create their own path in the world. They want to go for it. Whether they want to be a solopreneur like I am and just start their own thing, or if they want to grow Mm. something that's going to have a ton of employees like you do, what advice do you have?
1: Well, so in my entire life, I've always worked with partners. So I'm going to focus a little more on that side because I was... um, I was uh, focusing on aspirational things like starting, you know, bigger operations. And so, and even when I was doing private equity, I teamed with people. I've always liked teaming with people because I know I don't know everything and I want to do things on a little bit of a larger scale. So I need to work with people who have other skill sets than me. And so the advice I would give to folks who want to start something is find the right partners because getting the right partner is just, you know, the most amazing thing. If you all work together, nobody's looking for who gets the credit and you're pulling in the same direction and you have complementary not the same, but complementary skills. On the other hand, make sure you really know who your partners are because the one thing I would say to you and say to your listeners is you can recover from almost anything in business except from having a bad partner. That's the one thing that you sort of have to just end it <laughs> and start afresh. Because it, you you can't overcome that. A bad partner is is the worst thing in the world. Just And the obverse is a good partner is the best thing in the world for getting a business going.
0: Well, that's a good transition to this other question. And that is one of the things I speak about. I make my living as a professional speaker. I go into company meetings, but a lot of associations and things like that. And I have a talk that is called The Secret Weapon. Connecting mm-hmm. with people in a gadget crazed world. And right. you know, a couple of times you've made reference to partners and people. Why do you think for successful CEOs and, and others, why do you think their network and who they connect with matters? How 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 can they do that intentionally?
1: Well, look, I think that you want to connect with a lot of people, but I think people value the concept of network over sadly, over who they network with. Um, it's 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 not a matter of how many LinkedIn folks you have and how Amen. many Wee connections you Amen. have.
0: Amen, ding, 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 that's my whole thing. Yes, agreed.
1: What it is a matter of is that you connect with people that ultimately have the right values, want to pay it forward, want to reciprocate, are looking at you just for what you can, you know, how you can be useful to them. And you aren't looking at them for just how they can be useful to you. And so connecting with people in the right values, that's why personally I like to connect with people through charitable or other endeavors because that's sort of a pre-screen that folks are on the same wavelength with me. And I find that, you know, doing something together is great. So you can make great friends by working with someone in a soup kitchen because you know already that that's an important thing with them. Then later you'll hear, do they have an interesting business? What are they doing? Um, you can figure out if there's a way to cooperate. But you know already that their heart's not in the, you know, in, that their heart is in the right place.
0: Well, and I tell everybody that a like, a link, a share, and a follow, all these digital connections, they're nice, but they really have nothing in comparison to having shared experiences with other humans. So you and I could probably yeah. talk about this this all day. Another quick question is, another thing I talk about is how some people get farther across this gap that exists. It exists for teams, it exists for individuals, between their potential, because we get so excited in our society about potential. We're like, oh my gosh, You know, we hired this person, they're so great, and, and then they never perform. How come some people can figure out how to harness their potential and go across that gap towards results and performance when when other people get stuck?
1: Well, you know, there are some things that I like to say uh, that can be better caught than taught, and um, I think that, again, surrounding yourself with the right people or just and this is important. Going to work before you're an entrepreneur and an organization where you can learn that those skills, because those skills are different for everyone to a certain degree. Everybody has different psychological and personal barriers, and if you get to um, watch a lot of different people, the one thing I was great about, I was really happy about. I spent eight years at Solomon Brothers, and There were so many characters, and I learned that people succeed in different sorts of ways. And again, that's a matter of being caught, not taught. I learned more by watching other people than I did, you know, by looking at, you know, sitting in a classroom. I mean, I had the great privilege of working for Lou Ranieri, who some of your listeners may know. He is the – he was one of the founders of the mortgage market. He was a vice chairman at Solomon Brothers. And I saw – Way before anybody was talking about the environment, there was a paper company, a, a forestry company that came in. The, someone that wanted to buy a forestry company, and essentially their market, their 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 plan was take out a lot of debt, knock down, you know, great, you know, all sorts of redwoods, and pay the debt back real quick. And before anybody was even talking about the environment, before it was a big issue, he said, "No, let somebody else do that deal," you know we're not going to do something that's that, that causes harm, you know, don't, don't do bad stuff. And (laughs) just watching that.
0: That's another t-shirt right there.
1: Don't do bad stuff. Don't do bad stuff. Yes. I'm wearing a tie today. I'm going to have to change put on some (laughs) t-shirts.
0: Well, I, so I have a motto for this year and it's be nice, have fun. And so just yes. before New Year's, I printed a T-shirt that says, be nice, have fun. And uh, anytime nice. I'm in a situation or, you know, I ran into somebody who's a difficult person and, you know, if I can't be nice and I can't have fun, I just remove myself from the situation. It makes it much, much easier to live by those words.
1: Yes, so, absolutely.
0: I, I joke that I put everything on a T-shirt, but I, I only have two. I've only done that twice. So I have uh, I, I used to sell shirts that say try new things because that was my motto a while back. So, Hey. I've got more questions for you, Scott. This is fascinating. However, before I can, I've got to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure, boy, that you're going to sound amazing. They do all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Scott Shea. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you listening, I know that you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So Scott... I call this show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's the coolest thing you're doing these days?
1: Well, I'm on book tour. Wow. I think that's way cool. It's a lot of fun. I wrote a book called In Good Faith, uh, Questioning Religion and Atheism. I spent five years writing this book. You know, I don't know if you ever took a long flight, like a night flight, where everybody's sleeping and there's just one annoying guy <laughs> with a light on. Sto- story of my life. T-
0: I'm on long flights every week. I get it. <laughs>
1: that was me. <laughs> you probably saw me.
0: That's a, no, I've, in fact, I'm usually doing the same thing. I'm either I'm either working on something for the next speech I have to give, or I'm working on a long form article or a book or something too. I'm that other guy who's always typing on the.
1: Plate. You're the other guy. Yeah. So that's good. So now I know. I'll I'll have to go over to you next time and I'll give sit, you a high five. I'll
0: sit by you oh, next. next. Next time.
1: Yeah. So, five years I wrote this book and basically set aside everything. I used to be into cycling, doing cycling events, I used to do a lot of stuff, put it all aside because I felt like the most important thing I could do was to write a book explaining why it makes sense to believe in the God of the Bible with all we know about science, all we know about historicity, and all we know about our sense of modern morality. And I didn't think anybody had written that book. I'd read Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, all the sort of big name atheists. And it surprises people because here I am a banker. Um, I'm involved in a lot of stuff in the banking finance world. And I wrote a book on religion. So I'm
0: fascinated because you said in your introduction and when I when I agreed to have you on the show, I did a little homework on you. I love the fact that you question religion and atheism because I've read a lot of books that question religion. And I've seen books out there that question atheism. But I like the fact that you decided, let's take both of these on. So give us a little background about your your own religious path and why this was the book.
1: Yes. So I, I mentioned, although I hadn't anticipated earlier, so my father was a survivor. And when he was liberated from Dachau, he was under 70 pounds. Oh. And as I mentioned, his entire family had been wiped out. Uh, My closest relative is a second cousin once removed on his side. I mean, really, everybody, his aunts, his uncles, his brother. Father was killed uh, essentially in front of him. Um, So he got to Chicago. He was nursed back to health. And he realized that, you know, I'm looking at you, and if, like, your cup had been placed two inches differently than it was, he knew he wouldn't have survived. Like, there were so many miracles that got him to Chicago. By the same token, he was – so he was grateful. He was, like, certain there was a guy. On the other hand, he was really angry because his whole family had been wiped out. And I grew up with this – I don't want to call it tension, but conundrum. And so I really wanted to deeply examine, you know, the things that make sense about religion, about how religion can be really great and do awesome things for humanity – and how it can be not so great. And I'll I'll go to a punchline, because this is something I discovered, is that it comes down to something strange about idolatry. And people think that idolatry is just about, um, you know, bowing down to statues or something. And, you know, we defeated idolatry with the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago. But in reality, in reality, Stalin, Hitler, Paul Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Mao, they all use the exact same tropes as the God King Pharaoh in the Bible. It's poetry, pageantry, um, theater, um, all, of course, with very strong armies and secret informers. And so how did, you know, a guy like Stalin convince his followers to starve a quarter of the Ukraine and um, – uh, kill all the kulaks and send tens of millions of people to the gulag because they taught people to believe in us in lies. And that's really dangerous because that's when the horrors start. They ascribe super authority to finite beings, people, ideologies, and, you know, like communism, like Maoism. And, and, I wanted to understand how people like, who were supposedly, um, atheists like Mao could create religions (laughs) and all the dangers of that. So I really deeply question atheism as well as religion. And I come to some, I come to, uh, some conclusions and I'll tell you one. And this anybody can take, whether they're a believer or non-believer and they can use this in business. I'm can be I can be friends with anybody who follows the golden rule, which is don't do unto someone else what you wouldn't want done unto you. And if you can do that, then you won't self deify. Um, You'll believe that there's a spark of either divinity or humanity in everybody else you deal with. That's why you should be nice. (laughs) And because they're just like you. And it's been a it's been a a a long journey, um, but I think that people who read my book, I've gotten a lot of really uh, amazing responses from believers and non-believers. So I think it's probably,
0: and, and I mean, I, I've not read the book, but I think in sort of the world we're in today, it's so easy to polarize everybody, right? It's like, you know, uh, I, I know people who are atheists who will post on Facebook, like anything to do with religion is just horrible, da, da 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 and then I know people who are very religious who will post anything that isn't religious is so bad. And it sounds to me like, it sounds to me like you're creating sort of a bridge, where people can see the good and the bad in all sides. Is that, is that the purpose of the book?
1: What does that mean? Why do I read the book? Yeah, well, absolutely, because the dangers of idolatry is you all always adopt your own God-King and you follow their ideology. So you either are listening to MSNBC <laughs> and what they say is truth, just like what Pharaoh said was truth or what Assad says is truth, or you're listening to the, you know, to the, to the folks at Fox. And you're taking what they see as truth. So i that's why questioning is so important. You have to question everything. And you have to think, if this person were, if I just forget about what party they belong to, forget about what tribe they belong to, what I want to do to them, what I'm saying. And if you, and if you do that, you'll start listening to people because you wouldn't want someone not to listen to you, not to take what you're saying seriously. And... It starts a common platform. I've had some amazing conversations. I've debated on this book tour. I've debated people like Michael Shermer, who is a big atheist. And I've, and I've sat on panels and, and talked to believers, whether they be bishops or reverends or imams. And it's been a great experience because the book is all about building,
0: building bridges. So it's interesting because in the business world, right? And I have a business podcast. So I, we, I don't, we don't typically talk about religion and we don't typically talk oh. about politics because that's not what this, this show is about. And yet as human beings, we can't divorce ourselves from religion and, and politics. And it sounds like someone who is obviously well plugged into the finance world of New York, it sounds like you've stuck your foot in this and uh, no one's bit it off yet.
1: No one's bit it off yet. Look, I have this view that we're graced twice. Once with being born, which we had nothing to do with. We had nothing to do with that. We're born. We, we, we have a life. And the second day, which we're all searching for, not always find, is, and whether you're a believer or not, is, why are you here? What are you supposed to accomplish on this life and planet? And again, it doesn't matter, believer or not believer, if you can answer that question, you're going to be a happy person. But I can't answer that question. It's really hard. I could talk to you about this for
0: hours. It's off topic probably of the show, but right. we, I mean, I could go on and on. I, I have an interesting background. My, my my mother was Irish Catholic. From She was one of 10 kids, actually 12. Two didn't make it to adulthood, but she was one of 10 kids, um, the only one not to marry an Irish Catholic. And so that was fascinating. My grandfather forbid the marriage because my father was, wow. was neither Irish nor Catholic. Uh, and then eventually came around. And by the time my grandfather died, my dad was his favorite son-in-law. I mean, he, my dad did their taxes. He was a confidant <laughs> because my dad was a nice guy. I mean, over at the cool. over, over the course of time, there was no way you couldn't have liked him because he was just a nice man. So my grandfather came around on that. But my dad's mother uh, my dad was born. He was much older than to be my dad. He was 52 years old when I was born. I'm now 53. Wow. So my dad would be coming up on 106 this year. And so he was born in 1914 and back in the teens and the twenties, his mother would be what I would call my term a seeker. She was seeking for something in the world of spirituality and religion. And she changed religions every three or four years. Cause she'd get mad at the one she was at or something new was there. Right. So my father went to different religious schools and different churches, uh, constantly. And his mother had been born into a Jewish family. So he had been exposed to all types of things. He went to Christian science school for kindergarten, first and second grade. So my father, when he married into my mom's family, took the attitude of how different could Catholicism be, right? He saw my dad only saw the similarities between all of these religions that he kept experiencing as a child. And my dad raised us with this fact of the key to religion, even though we were raised Catholic, my dad always said, look, I'm not a Catholic. And my parents couldn't say, oh, not Catholic. You're you go to hell because that would be a bad message to tell your kids. And my dad had no intention of ever converting, although he did uh, after my mom died when he was in his 80s but uh, yeah, he lived to be 99. So he had a quite, quite a fascinating wow. life. Good for him. But his, Good for you. but his take about religion always was, don't look at the differences. That's what causes wars. When it comes to religions, look at the similarities and all you're going to find is massive similarities
1: live by those similarities. Well, that's a great thing. And look, I think the other thing we have to do is we always have to again, question and, I don't actually care what religion, if you're a part of an organized religion, I don't care what organized religion you're a part of, as long as you're embarrassed by it. So <laughs> well, did you grapple with it?
0: Well, I'm, I was raised Catholic, so I got a long list that I can take that to. So.
1: But, but I mean that in a good way, because <laughs> you always have to look, if, you're, if you want to avoid tribalism, it's, okay, I'm not perfect. Uh, you know, don't deify your own religion, your own self. Amen. I'm not perfect. Yeah. We're not perfect. And that makes that humbles you so that you can deal with other people. And and that's so critical. I mean, I'm a believer. I definitely I'm a believer. Um, I think that it's makes more sense to believe than not believe. And if someone reads my book, they'll understand why. But on the other hand, I don't think we can – I think we have to be really worried when idolatry seeps into religion, when religion becomes an end in and of itself. And so that's what I've tried to do in the book, and uh, it's been very rewarding. And the Um, book is
0: called In Good Faith, and I assume it's available at Amazon and everywhere people can get a book.
1: It it is called In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, published by Postal Press. It's available at all quality bookstores and on Amazon – there's a Kindle, there's a there's a um, Kindle edition, there's an Audible edition, which people someone yeah. with a much better voice than me, who I is great voice, <laughs> Andrew is read. So if you like listening, it's it's really great. People are telling me they like listening to it maybe oh, even better than that's you know.
0: th- that that's awesome. Hey, the last couple of questions for you. I love to sure. ask people who come on the show. And you know, I think a great entrepreneur, I think, is an observer. So I love to ask people who come on the show, when you look out at the world of entrepreneurs, who do you say, she or he, they're doing cool things?
1: Yeah, I will tell you somebody who I think is doing great things. Um, uh, And I'm going to, it's an organization called Jeff Tabin. And it's an organization, he's an orthopedic um, surgeon. Uh, He started an organization called CureBlindness.org. And what he does is he, goes to these remote, you know, forsaken areas, and he does cataract surgery all day and all night. He does it like three times a year. And he j- he started, and so p- people, there's like 18 million people in the world who are blind because of cataracts, and all you need to do is remove their cataract. Hmm. And they're in these off places. They don't have, a, 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 they don't have um, access to Western medicine, and he goes there, he started an organization and he may be doing 70 surgeries a day, you know, with volunteers and people who just learned to put drops in the eyes and these people come out hmm. and they can see again. And in the areas where if you're blind, you're going to be dead soon.
0: Hmm.
1: That's- and, I, you know, so that's a hugely entrepreneurial. He figured out a way to organize with the partners to organize a factory where they make these lenses for like 20 bucks a lens. And they're selling the lenses to people who can afford them in these places. And others, they subsidize the other people. Nice. I think he is a fantastic entrepreneur. Now, he's not doing it to make money. Right. But he's making huge change. That's what it's about. In a, in a With a factory. That's awesome. So the last question, and this ties right into this. The
0: last question I ask everybody is, is Scott, what do you do to give back to the greater good? Because I think… If we're fortunate, and, and those of us who get to carve yep. our own path in the world, I think we're all fortunate, no matter no matter the level of success. Uh, but I think if you're fortunate, you've got to find your way to give back. So so what do you do?
1: Well, one of the things I do in all candor was for five years is writing this book in good faith. Um, I also, um, I am part of a, I'm president of a group called org that um, provides Um, education. It started out Jewish. Now it does interfaith education as well. Um, And I'm a big, big believer in doing that. I'm also, um, we don't have time for this on your show, I don't think, but I'm involved in a lot of social entrepreneur activities where I'm trying to back companies that are doing amazing things, recycling plastics or Hmm. creating biodecomposable plastics Um, concrete that is um, ecologically more sensitive. Because I think just like this entrepreneur starting a factory, I think if you can make change in a way that is, is profitable, I think it becomes sustainable. And so I'm really deeply, deeply into that agenda. And I hope that's the way I'm changing the world a little bit for the better. Well, I, th- I think all of that is awesome.
0: So, so Scott, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with everybody here at Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. If people are trying to find you, they're like, I got to know more about this guy. Where do they go? Do you have a website? How do people
1: find you? Yes. Please go to Scott Shea, S-H-A-Y, dot com, where you can see podcasts and like this one, um, where you can see what upcoming events and book talks I'm doing. And- where you can just uh, read or hear about uh, some of these ideas, both business-wise and with respect to um, my books.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Well, and if you ever get to Austin, Texas, look me up and we'll go have a cup of coffee because this was great. And I would love to talk to you much more about all of this stuff because I found this to be one of the more interesting episodes, which is saying a lot because uh, we've had a lot of interesting episodes over the last uh, 537 shows. So, uh Uh, I'd love to talk to you more. I think what you're doing is really fascinating. So Scott, thank you for coming on and sharing with the audience. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every single time, if it wasn't for the audience, duh, we wouldn't have a show. Uh, If you like cool things entrepreneurs do, do me a favor. Tell a friend, when I meet somebody who says, I listen to your show, I always ask, how did you find it? And almost everybody says it was referred to me by my boss, my mom, my brother, somebody. So be sure you're talking about it, but also go over to iTunes or I guess now it's called Apple Podcasts and uh, leave your review. Uh, subscriptions and reviews are how podcasts get found in the organic world. So tell people about it and uh, review and uh, and rate the show. Hey, we're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody just as cool as Scott Shea. You're thinking, what? impossible. See, that's what I knew. That's what the audience is saying, Scott. They're going, that's not possible. But we do it every single time. But in the meantime, you can go back and listen to all the old shows. And while you're at it, make sure your ladder's against the right wall. Go out and try some new things. Be nice. Have fun. And while you're at it, have a great day.